So are you here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're here, cause this is the place to be, baby. You've come to the place with a laid-back pace. I'm talking about your hour of hours with the hosts who won't boast. I'm talking, of course, about my main man, Paul Leslie. I am your announcer. Can you hear me announcing? I'm getting this listen fest underway so you can get your dose of inspiration, communication, and just a little bit of fuel for your aspirations. You know exactly what I mean, cause, well, cause you know the show. Hey, we got a tape from the Wayback Press Play Machine. An interview with music man Randy Edelman, hailing from Teaneck, New Jersey, and known from coast to coast. Randy's done some fabulous things with sound. Like what? You may be asking. Well, if you don't know about the Randy Edelman magic touch already, huh-huh? Well, he's a film and television composer, putting the perfect pristine, marvelous music touches to go with what your eyeballs are peeping on the screens at home or at the theater. Uh-huh. We like the music he added to that last of the Mohicans movie. Oh, the music might have been the best part of that flick. Now, we mean that in a good way, since that's the only way we mean anything. And then there's our other man, Randy Edelman, the singer-songwriter-recording artist. Now, some of you may not only saw him on stage, you got the wax, too. Randy wrote some luscious lyrics, some swinging songs. We gotta tip your hat to his song, Weekend in New England. Yes, son, even our chum Barry Manilow flipped over that tune. He covered it on his fourth disc, uh-huh. Now, we got no age limits on this interview, young or old. We just ask you to think about hitting that subscribe button for the Paul Leslie Hour on the YouTube. Uh Uh-huh. Can you do it, baby? Will you do it, baby? Of course you're going to do it, baby. If you're on the tube, you ought to get a subby. And we'll really dig it if you ring that bell. You hear? Ding, ding. So enjoy this in-depth interview with Randy Edelman. Now, this one hit the laid-back radio airwaves quite a few years back when Randy come out with his album, The Pacific Flow to Abbey Road. So whether you're in Malibu or Maui or your mama's place, we hope you enjoy this episode. It's just for you, baby. Well, till next time, speaking for Paul Leslie and me, your announcer you hear me announcing, is going to prop his feet up and listen right along with you. Catch you on the flip side. (laughs) Have a ball, baby. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, it's our great pleasure to welcome our special guest, Randy Edelman. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Who is Randy Edelman? He is uh, a guy from New Jersey who uh, started fooling around with a piano when uh, he was very young and just kind of took it from there and uh, always enjoyed doing that and started writing music when I was pretty young and just continued on without any particular um, road in front of me that I knew I was going on and just kind of progressed as a musician kind of through the different phases that that I have uh, traveled on. So take us back. What was life like growing up in New Jersey? 
just pretty pretty much uh, normal. Like I, I love playing sports and doing the kind of things that everybody else was doing. I didn't really draw any attention to this kind of interest I had in music so a little later, though I was doing it and taking lessons and basically kind of having a traditional background playing classical music. That at the time wasn't really considered, that wasn't that hip, you know, so I just wanted to be uh, just sort of like everybody else until I discovered, you know, when I was about 11 or 12 or maybe 13 that, that playing piano at parties was a good way to, to get good-looking women. What about your parents? Did they play a lot of music around the house? No, no, they, they weren't musicians. They played, they played music, but no, no more than anybody else, you know, a lot of well, music. They would go into New York. They would, they would, you know, maybe bring back the cast album or something like that. But, but not. They, they weren't particularly musical, you know. How did they feel about you playing music? They were supportive, but they were certainly not in any way thinking that I was going to do this. Or, or I, I didn't show any kind of uh, ability to, to, you know, like other other kids may have been in bands and things like that. I was pretty much, and have continued to be sort of a, except when I'm, when I'm scoring films or doing other things that I utilize, you know, lots of music playing my orchestrations or, or, or my scores. I've been, I'm pretty much a soloistic musician. I've never been in, in a group or anything like that. So I didn't, I didn't kind of show that, an ability to do that, so they were like scared that uh, I wouldn't be able to. I mean, except for teaching music, they they certainly couldn't couldn't see me doing anything else. And of course, I had other ideas. How did you come to perform piano as part of the Broadway shows? Uh, when I got out of uh, school, I um, I was kind of uh, playing piano for a lot of singers, accompanying them, and doing arrangements and stuff like that, and I. I uh, just auditioned to uh, play in a in a in a fifth end of a, of a Broadway show, and that's kind of how I I I started doing that, and that was great. All that stuff was a great experience. I I didn't do it for that long because then I I kind of left New York, but and that was kind of the time that you know all this kind of singer songwriter stuff was happening, and I was kind of listening to that and and getting into, when when I was on the road conducting for, for singers and things, I had a lot of time, so I started writing my own songs that I'd never planned to do. But I kind of um, fell into doing that, and at that time, if you could, you know, in the like mid-70s, if you could carry it soon, you know, you could get a record deal, so that's what happened. Well, speaking of record deal... Tell us about the experience of recording your first album. I was, it, it was so funny. I, I hadn't had any experience or a lot of experience in recording. So since I had such a, a pretty full musical background, especially compared to the, the other people that were doing that kind of thing, I was so ready to do the album. I like had, I didn't know you'd go in and you cut tracks and you screw around with the tracks and then you, you know, you, you make changes and there, and you didn't overdub vocals and stuff like that. So I was so ready to do it. I literally recorded my first album in like a week. <laughs> I had done all the arrangements and written everything down, and I was singing and playing just about everything, and also producing it myself and doing the arrangements. So I, I did it a little quicker than you could, but it was a very small budget and a small label at the time. So I, I just, you know, I did it pretty quickly. But it was, 
you know, it was it was exciting. I mean, I was a young kid and didn't know, you know, where I was going or exactly what I was doing. But it was a little different than the already my path kind of changed from being more or less of a musical arranger. Then suddenly I was becoming a, an artist, you know, without too much thought about it, you know, just kind of winging it. You know, I, I liked writing songs and went through a couple of personal things that kind of led me into writing lyrics. Speaking of lyrics, I wanted to ask you about one of your early songs, Weekend in New England. Yeah, you know, and that, that was, uh, you know, that wasn't exactly at that time, but that that was kind of, you know, a... That that was a song that kind of evolved. It's funny that that is the one that that people know from that from that time, and it's really lasted because of of Barry's continued popularity. The weekend in England was just kind of a thinking back, kind of a reminiscence to um, just someone who I used to go and visit up in Summerstock in in Maine, and it's just kind of a song that was written in. Um, kind of retrospectively a couple of years later, just thinking about that experience. But it went through a lot of changes because the original version I did on my album, I actually changed for Barry. And it was kind of like a more of a jazz thing. And that's the version that he recorded, the version that it's not that he changed it. I changed it for him, but it kind of musically was different than the original original version that I did. So it's kind of interesting that a song that kind of went through different changes as opposed to songs that you write and you say, oh, this is a little good one, you know, and you put it aside and it just stays the way you wrote it. A lot of people have written their best songs or something really quickly. And this, this song kind of evolved musically and lyrically and then into a different version for someone else to record, not knowing that that was going to be you know, something that people were going to, it was just going to hang around for a long time, you know. We're talking with songwriter Randy Edelman. What brought you out to Los Angeles? I, I came out early. I mean, I was there early after my first, my first album, I came out here because I was conducting for people in Las Vegas. And, and my first album, which, which very few people heard, was heard by a group at that time that were really big for the Carpenters. And they not only recorded a couple of songs, but took me on tours for their opening act. Uh, it was kind of strange because I would, and, and I had never sung in front of, you know, three people or even, you know, my mother. And suddenly I was kind of thrown out in front of thousands of people. I mean, they were playing big, big, you know, field houses and with big college tours and stuff. And so um, I had to kind of uh, get my feet wet quick. That was when I that was when I you know came out to California and, and it was kind of an odd thing because I would go from opening for them to the very next night opening for Frank Zappa and of course doing the same thing because I didn't have anything else to do because I had never done it before so that was a completely you can imagine the experience of playing you know fifteen unknown songs in front of the Carpenters in a, in front of the kind of polite audience at let's say Brigham Young University and then going through like the celebrity uh 
the Phoenix Celebrity Theater with with a revolving stage with Frank Zappa the next night and having people, you know, screaming and yelling at you to get get the hell off the stage, you know. Do you think that those were good experiences? Oh, yeah. They were great. They were lovely. Yeah. I have a good sense of humor, so... Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't never. And and you know, this was not anything that I had planned. Singing and songwriting thing. It 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 couldn't. It wasn't like I took. I, I took it seriously in the writing of the songs. That's what I cared about. But as far as me going out there and doing it, I didn't take it that seriously. How did you get interested in film scores? Well, when I when I came out, there was a lot of stuff that was that was going on at the time. When I came out to California, I remember that I was had to take. I was on a label that was distributed by MGM, and they took me to just to take some like publicity pictures or something. I, I, the old MGM lot, which is now the Sony lot, doesn't exist anymore. But I mean, it exists, but it's a different company. But I remember going to a scoring section and being, I think it was Edward Bernstein or somebody like that, somebody, you know, great. And I was intrigued. I wasn't as intrigued as it wasn't about the music particularly as how the music was matching perfectly the picture. And in those days there were no there were no uh, computers, so there, there was a different method that was used, and that really intrigued me, so I decided to actually study with somebody to learn the method of doing that, which is a lot of mathematics, so it may sound strange. Of course, I, I, I knew lots of film goers and appreciated them, and, and but I, it was that, you know, that kind of mathematical way of the picture matching the music that really intrigued me. So I learned that and did some early TV movies and stuff, but it wasn't until years and years later when I started doing it pretty exclusively after I had, you know, done a lot of concerts and a lot of albums and especially a lot of, had a lot of success in England with my own stuff, which is where that happened. Then gradually when I would come back here, I was doing a lot of scoring things, but the first kind of, big picture that I did is a picture called Twins with Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito. And that was after years of doing, you know, a million other things. And that sort of, sort of started me doing, getting into a lot of scoring and doing a lot of comedies. And then I tried to get away from that and do more serious historical things like Gettysburg and Last of Mohegans and Dragon Art and you know, stuff like that. So, so that's when it started. I mean, really years after I had done lots of things musically, both as a performer, as a producer, and as an arranger. So to go from recording the traditional song to scoring films, was that a difficult transition? Oh, that's a, yeah, that, that's a completely, I mean, most people, you know, I mean, you have to have your kind of musical chops and your background together to do the scoring thing. The scoring thing, when I say it has absolutely nothing to do with the song thing, it doesn't. However, there were many musical things that I had done as a producer and an arranger and as a pianist that helped me doing scores, especially contemporary scores, things like Twins or like Michael and Vinny or lots of the, or the math, the original math that I did with Jim Carrey, which need contemporary kind of hip stuff 
when you don't have a lot of time, it's not like making a record where you can just sit in the studio for a month getting a drum sound. So all that stuff of making record, that was helpful where in other things, you know, you, you have to have your kind of musical background in styles, whether you're writing a period piece that takes place in the 1800s or, or a futuristic piece and you have to have a really good knowledge of kind of 20th century atonal music to create atmosphere and tension and suspense. So it all, it all comes into play. But the songwriting and the scoring thing, per se, they're two different crafts, and they don't really meet. How important is the score to the experience of watching a film, in your opinion? It's, it's very important. I mean, it's, it's just important where there is music in a film and what it is out when there's silence in a film. I mean, it's got to be, it's got to be the right style. It's got to be the right tone. It, it shouldn't overpower the drama or the, the, the characters that are on the screen. It's really important that in a way, you know, it's always said you shouldn't notice it, but it's really important. Just, just try to look into any kind of, Really, any film, not just a dramatic film, but anything, whether it's suspense or drama or, or romance or a romantic comedy without the music. I'm not talking about the songs now, I'm talking about the score, and, and you'll see how, how pretty quickly how important the music is. It's, it's really important. And, you know, unfortunately, you, when you score a film, the composer is the last person kind of into a film, and usually you don't. You won't ever have enough time. You could spend a year on, on all these movies and it wouldn't be enough time. So it, it, you have to be right and you have to be fast. <laughs> Even one of those alone, being right and being too slow, that doesn't work, and being uh, wrong and being fast doesn't work. So you've got to be, when I say right, you've got to be right in the, the sound of the music and the ambience and the style and the pacing of it. And you've got to do it pretty quickly because you're under a lot of pressure. So when somebody contacts you and they say, I want you to do the score for this film, how does the process begin? It really begins when you get a cut of a movie. It used to be years and years ago. I mean, I'm not, uh, I, don't, I don't know exactly how it was, but the, the composer always got an editor, let's call the final cut of the film. And then the composer had like two or three months and they go in and do the music. It no longer works like that. There was never a final cut of the, I still don't know how they do it, but, you know, a week before it goes in the 3,000 theaters, if you're doing, you know, a big mainline studio film, uh, they're still cutting away. And of course, with special effects, a lot of times I write things that are not even on the screen. There's just markings of what it's going to be. For instance, when I just did The Mummy 2 a couple of years ago, or Triple X, or stuff like that, there were a lot of special effects that, that aren't final until uh, after I'm done. So there's, so there's a, you know, there's a, an avalanche or a snowstorm or something, and you get certain shots, but you don't get the, the exact shots and see what it's going to be. So, but to answer your question, you, you start with a cut of the film that's as close as they have to whatever the, the final version is going to be, and then you you work with a director, and, and there's usually what they call a temp score, which they've used for previews that they've had. You just kind of work with the director from that and just go. Which film have you been the most excited to score? 
You know what? I've been really a lot of them, and in a lot of different genres. Uh, I don't. I don't really have one. They're all different, and they're really like. You know, they all have their own background and histories, and their own difficulties. So when you can start, because they're, they're like it's like putting together a puzzle doing a film score. When you solve a problem or you make a a scene work for a a director. It's always it's always a good feeling, and 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 sometimes uh, some of the ones that you like the most are not necessarily the ones that people know, or, or the ones that people are successful in the theaters. I mean, there were, there were a couple of films. There was a remake of the old horror film Diabolique that I did years ago that people just it. The original French film didn't even have any music in it. You know, in the end, you know, somebody is like murdered in a bathtub. And but I really loved the score to that. And then we'll do a, a light film like the hour you were sleeping. There's a film that I really like doing that score and score is just you know, as much of a romantic comedy as anything else. But there was a certain difficulty in doing it and in the end we came up with something that everybody was happy with. And so so a lot of times when you say what was your favorite film to work on, there's the story and the history of these all these films have history. Some of them are like even even though they may not seem complicated. So films that have been around for fifteen years as trips going through one star or another star or, or one studio puts it in turnaround, and they all have their own histories, and that may be, by the way, the serious film or the most dramatic film. It doesn't matter. They just have their own stories and people that have been involved. So when a composer comes in and you literally have weeks or a couple of months at the most, you're becoming part of, you know, kind of a story that's existed for some of these people, uh, including maybe a, a novelist who wrote a book years ago and has been involved with it. And, you know, you're just part of a whole, a whole history. Uh, and usually, you know, you, you like, I mean, I did a film last year called Leap Year that took place in Ireland with a, an actress I like called Amy Adams. And it wasn't a film a lot of people saw, but we worked on it really hard to, to make the that whole Irish feeling of it because it takes place all over there. And you kind of, the, the ones that are closest to you in proximity is working on them, you kind of feel closest to those. In terms of music in movies, I think one movie that many people say that the music is just incredible from beginning to end would be Last of the Mohicans. And you had a hand in that. Right, yeah. That was one of these, you know, people asking about that because that was one of those situations there that was one of the quickest and with a very difficult director, Michael Mann, who's known for being very tough, quickest and nicest. And when I say easy, I don't mean easy in terms of it was hard work, but it was a situation, and I, I'm not sure where you're going with this, but I've spent so much time and people asking about it. Well, it was a score that existed when they were having a lot of problems with, uh, the music, with the movie and a lot of problems in the previews with it because it wasn't really a commercial picture. And Daniel Bo Lewis, who was the star, who's, of course, a great actor, had never been in any picture that was so commercial. And so there was a problem, and they blamed a lot of reasons. And one of the 
the things they blame didn't score. So I was brought in in a difficult situation, and I wrote about half the music and suggested to them that they keep what they already had because I thought it could work together. And I had very little time, and that seemed to be the right thing. And then I also suggested to them, if you believe this, there was no plans on that movie. It was such a mess. And it really wasn't. It was just a very, it was just a different kind of movie. And if you know it, you know how wonderful it is. It was, there was no plan to have a soundtrack album. So I said, listen, you gotta have a soundtrack, you gotta have an album for this. No, 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 no. And then finally I said, listen, I'm going in and I'll put everything together. And because there was a question about who did what, I mean, there were two composers on it, I made sure that they, they called me and said, oh, you can't, you can't put it together the way you did it because it needs to be in sequence of the film. And I said, no, no, not in this situation. I think people are going to want to know who did what. So I'm putting my half on, and then Trevor Jones is the other composer, his half on. And I'm really glad I did that because the album went on to be like a triple platinum album, which was unheard of for a soundtrack or something like that. Even though it was an odd situation um, in which I had to go to the Golden Globes of the company before, and he went to the board of the Catholic. Yeah. But it was just one of those things that worked, worked out, and I thought that in a difficult situation, I came in and, and did what I had to do and was, you know, fair about it, and, and the outcome of it was a huge success in something that you would if I laid out the circumstances, you would think is is disastrous. Tell us about one of the pieces from Last of the Mohicans, Chorus Theme. Ah, Chorus Theme. <laughs> well, that's a piece of, of mine that's my favorite. The reason that I like it is because if you've seen the film and you know the, the, the violence and the way a lot of the stuff was shot... The reason I like that that cut, and I, I do that a lot, I just was in Europe and I do it a lot in, in, in concerts where they have a lot of film music festivals, is because that's a scene that takes place in a garden with, with Madeline Stowe, who is the lead actress, and it, right before the soldiers are attacked in a like, horrific you know, violent, unbelievable lay, very graphic and very bloody. But the music to that scene is very lyrical and almost like a classical chamber music piece. And what it does, and and why I, I always like the piece, but I also point people to it, is it's a way that I, the composer is in a way, uh, can work in a certain way where you're sitting such a peaceful scene art, but the reason that the music is like that is because you're getting ready for a scene that doesn't have any music, that is just sound effects and tomahawks flying and people, I want, you know, just getting really torn apart in that battle. And that piece works to almost set you up for that and in doing so, make the next scene more intense. But it would, but it would have been without not only the scene before, it, but that music that's almost like a, a minuet or something at that time period. I forgot exactly what year it was. It was in the 1800s, but you know that's one of the reasons that I like the piece and the, the theme has become very well known. 
We're talking to songwriter and recording artist Randy Edelman. I wanted to work our way over to your album, The Pacific Flow to Abbey Road. Ah, uh, yes. Well, that, that was a long time coming. I mean, it was almost uh, over, over 20 years that I've been scoring and, and doing almost 100 scores or something that I really haven't thought about writing songs. So this was something last year I just felt like taking a break and and all of a sudden I just started writing songs and, and got away from the scoring and I got a I kinda of went down the road from where I'm sitting right now and to the ocean and stuck a uh, coffee pot and a piano uh in a nice place overlooking the ocean and just wrote just about all those songs and then I had recorded a lot of a lot of blues scores. 27 Dresses, Leap Year, Mummy 3, Shanghai Noon, and Shanghai Nights with Jackie Chan. I had done all of those at Abbey Road in London with a great orchestra there. And also, I also loved the, the room there, the big room. And I always loved sitting late at night playing piano in that huge room when the orchestra left. So I kind of always had that in my mind, and I just thought, you know what, that's a good idea, especially on a lot of the, the personal songs to go over there. So I wrote the songs here and I went over to England and recorded most of it at Abbey Road, hence obviously the title. I'm sure recording at Abbey Road was surreal. Oh yeah, no, it was great. But like I said, I've been doing it quite a lot before this and I always wanted to go over there and do some songs there. So when it kind of mood struck me, I wrote a lot of songs. I mean, this wasn't like during all those years that I wasn't writing songs. I was writing songs and I stockpiled them. This was basically all done in the last, written in the last year, and then, you know, the last uh, few months went over and recorded them there. Could you pick a favorite song from the Pacific Flow to Abbey Road? I love a song called Don't Forsake Me Now, which is in a certain, has a certain piano style that I like. And I also like as an instrumental those waiting that closes the album that, that, that I like. It's very simple. I mean, both of these are very pianistic words, things like uh, walking in the streets of London and if I could do that and Miracle, Miracle New Orleans have to have more, a little more instrumentation. Basically, the album is very personal. Tell us about the first song on the album, if I could do that. Well, that's, that's a very personal song and it's a romantic song and it's like, if I could do that, those two means uh, I could go out and um, have things be a different way, which happens to a lot of people that may have not worked out the way you thought it would without getting into it more, you know. It, that song's been, the idea of that has been written lots of different ways. I don't I don't think particularly like that, but that's sort of the way I, I put it. We're talking with songwriter and recording artist Randy Edelman. One of the other songs you mentioned was Walkin' on the Streets of London. Yeah, I wrote that, that one. I didn't, I, I shouldn't say that. No, I did write it here, but I finished it when I was actually in London last year scoring something. And it was just like, that's sort of a song about, I was actually having a lot of trouble in my room. It's kind of hooking up my, uh, my computer and my phones and everything. And just everybody was walking around. So the song, it, it, it's about, you know, a, 
So there's a lot of changes going on. It was the um, the consistent, you know, the constant people when I was looking at my window, just up and down the streets at all hours, rain or shine, and where I was trying to do my my thing, and, and it's just kind of, uh, you know, I like the way it came out, but it's just, it's really pretty much uh, obvious if you listen to the lyrics. It's just really about what it's what it what it is and no matter what's going on you are going to be walking up and down the streets of london for a long time another song you mentioned from your album the pacific flow to abbey road miracle in new orleans tell us about that one yeah there was, that was a tweet that i read an article in the paper about somebody I, and i never got really exactly what or who it was but there was a child that was saved during the, the storm there and I didn't get too much detail, but the idea kind of was was rolling around in my mind. That's why when I said I wrote these songs, I had a I had a bunch of ideas, lyrical ideas that I that I kind of liked, and that made it kind of that really pushed me toward turning them into songs. And and that was one about it's about a real experience that somebody had. But but like I said, I I got the idea from an article that I read. So I was actually on my way back from uh, a rap, a rap awards, or a few years ago, a rapper named Nelly took a, a song of mine that had been done by Patti LaBelle, Isn't It a Shame, and turned it into a big rap hit for my place. So I went to Miami as um, <laughs> to get my rap award for that song, and on the way back is when that storm was happening. So that's kind of that's when I remember reading about it. We're talking with recording artist and songwriter Randy Edelman. The album closes with Waiting. Tell us about that closing piece. You know what? That's, that is, you know, I wrote a lot of times. I don't write instrumental things usually. Usually when I do, they're for specific things and for films. And usually when I'm when I'm thinking about writing songs, I won't. But that had a particular, that was almost like a score without a film. I mean, a theme without a film is really what I want to say. And I went in, in England with a cellist, and uh, she played this beautiful part I had written for her. And it just seemed to be, that's really sort of, that thing is really, if I could do nothing else and I could just write stuff like that, I would do it. Because without a film, without a song, without anything, I, I just really enjoy doing that. And, and the mood of that seemed right. It was kind of no place else to put it except at the end. I almost called it Waiting for Frederick because it, it has a kind of Chopin feeling that I didn't. I just called it Waiting. And I'll leave that up. Leave that up to the listener to, to think if if you're waiting for is it a romantic thing or you know waiting for Frederick would make it a little different. So I just decided to leave the Frederick out and the four and just make it a lady. Do you envision recording another album like this? Well, let's put it this way: I'm not going to show that I won't. It's just you have to really create a space for it. And I just got back. I was in England. I actually did. 
if you believe, I mean, I did a club with for three nights, which I haven't done anything like that in years, just with the piano. I was at a really cool place called the Pheasantry that Eric Clapton actually used to not only live in this place, it's off the King's Road in London, but actually he had a studio and stored his guitars and they turned it into like more of a club. It's really nice. I, I did a lot of promotion stuff there. I mean, I'm sure I will. I, w- I would have said a few years ago before I did this one because I was so involved. I mean, in scoring, your uh, your task is to make the director's vision in a scene, whatever it is, kind of come to life when when the director feels and the film needs music to enhance it. And that's really what your thing is. It's certainly not the way the song most most. Well, just about all directors I work with have no idea of my background as a songwriter. You know, I've actually been accused of being my own son. That's it. Yeah, I, I mean, that's almost a too long story to get into. But it's it's like is the clip that went to Australia with these songs that were popular in England in the late seventies. You know, uh, you know, they, they just can't imagine. Some people just can't. They're they're uh, they just can't imagine you you do something totally different. But I know when I went and did the Olympics there in like 2000, they they were surprised that that I was the same person who'd been there, you know, 20 years before that doing these songs. But so, but to answer your question, I I probably will. I'm not sure if it would be personal like this, or more produced, or less produced, or just piano pieces. You know, I'm not sure. But it's a much different art form than scoring films. Scoring films. Is this, you know has its own craft to it, and obviously songwriting does too. But they they all you know they all they they work together, but they're also very kind of individualistic kind of things. When someone listens to your music, what do you hope they get from the experience of listening? Well, you know what I hope they I hope they get what it is that I was you know my my the emotion of it that I was trying to put across, be it romance, be it suspense, be it, I mean, you know, I, I hope that they, that they get the heart of it, and the heart of it is the, the emotion, and that may be conveyed by melody, or by just a sound, or by an orchestration, or the sound of a particular instrument, but I, I just hope they get the, you know, the, the emotion of a particular piece. And that's the same thing with, and and that's the same thing with the song. Song is different because you're kind of pointing them. You're, you're more. Well, I shouldn't say it's more. In a movie, you have a scene and music that goes along with it, and you hope that they get the emotion that the music adds to the emotion. In a song, obviously, there's no there's no visual, but you have a, a melody and lyrics that pointing them in a certain direction. And I just hope that they they um, they're moved by the experience of listening to what you know I created, what you know any composer has created, and and that's I think the ultimate goal. And just you know, to, and and for it to be uniquely yours, as opposed to something else that they they've heard. Through the years, what musicians have continued to inspire you? Yeah, you know, you'd have to. There's so many musicians in so many genres, classical musicians. I think I've been influenced by all. You know, in, in retrospectively, I've I've been 
influenced by lots of different musicians and lots of different genres. I mean, there are many people in pop music who, who I love and, and many people in classical music and many people in the theatrical world in music. I mean, I, 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 I can't, I certainly can't point to one. I mean, you could say that in the theater, you're influenced by everybody from, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein to, to Leonard Bernstein and classical music. <laughs> parts from way back, whether it's Bach or Beethoven or and then up to Mauro and Stravinsky and Rachmaninoff, and then you get into the pop world, and it's everybody from uh, Lieber and Stoller to, to the Beatles and, and, and to great blues performers. I mean, I, with me, I've been influenced by everybody. And then you have people like, like Backrack, or Backrack and Hal David, who have written this interesting original tune. So, I mean, everybody has influenced me, you know, that's for sure. What is the best thing about being Randy Edelman? The fact that I'm going to be getting off the phone with you soon. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, you got to No, what is the best thing? The best yeah. thing is, look, you know what? I'm very fortunate that I have been able to do, to, to still work, you know, behind my piano and be able to fill the world over everybody's eyes and make a living doing this my whole life and never have a job doing anything else. And just being able to, I feel it's 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 a privilege and an honor to be able to, to be an artist and go through your life writing, creating original music. And that's really the, that's sort of something that I've been very, very fortunate to be able to do. Now for my last question. For anyone listening in, wherever, whenever, do you have any parting words of wisdom for our listeners? Parting words of wisdom. Let's put it this way. In, in the mortal words of Bob Dylan, every day above ground is a good day. Very good. <laughs> I, I don't know why that came into my head, but if you want no, you, you know, I just, I, I just, just, and you know what, follow it, and as far as this, anybody that's got any kind of, is it, creative, uh, no matter what's going on, take it from me, just follow your dreams, and work hard, and don't let anybody uh, tell you, uh, take you off your course, and you'll probably get to where you want to go. Thank you very much. On behalf of our listeners for this interview. Okay, Paul. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Have a good one. Okay, you too. Bye. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, The Entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.